0: Well, I'm excited to get to preach today. I'm, I always like preaching, but I'm just I'm thankful that we are going through the Gospel of Mark together, uh, and continuing on in the sermon series that we started um, late last year. And I love Mark's Gospel because it is action-packed. It is theologically meaty, and it's it's really it's masterfully crafted. When you start to see like how Mark put together the story of Jesus, taking all of the stories he could have talked about and organizing it all. It's like, it's just amazing to me, and I'm excited to get to share more and more of that with you throughout the weeks and months to come. But what I'm most encouraged about in traveling through a gospel together in a, in a sermon series is that we have the opportunity to, to really encounter the living Jesus, through, through this time together. You know, whenever, whenever we dig into texts of Scripture, it is vital. I mean, if you've listened to me for even a few sermons, you'll know that I think it's important that we understand the context of the text, that we understand the characters and the setting and the theological arguments being made. All of that is important. But there's a danger that we spend too much time learning about the text and learning about the God presented in the text that we actually miss what the text is for, and that's encountering God and wrestling with the call to place our trust in Him. And so before we dig into the details of today's passage, I just want to open us in prayer and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would help me and help us to be open, not only to the information in the Bible, but but open to you and your living word to speak to us and to touch our hearts and our emotions as much as our brains. That you would draw us to deeper trust and faith in you. And thank you that your word is so dynamic that the same handful of passages can can reach each of us in a different way. And I pray that you would do that today. Amen. So for the first five sermons in this series, we have been covering what, what I guess would be considered the prologue of Mark's gospel. It's like the beginning part. It's Mark 1, 14 through 15. Um, so Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, actually, is, is the whole prologue. And Mark uses these 15 verses to tell us before he even gets into the meat of the the gospel. He's like, here's what I think about Jesus. I'm just letting you know. I think that's what Mark is doing in his prologue. I'm just letting you all know, here's what I think about Jesus. He's the son of God. His arrival is not only good news, but it is the good news that is foretold by the prophets of old. And what those prophets were saying is that God was one day going to come dwell with his people. And Mark is saying, I think that that Dwelling of God with the people is Jesus. Just letting you know. And then he says um, uh, that the image of God is in Jesus and that Jesus is the image of what a human being fully alive looks like. What a redeemed human being looks like. And Mark tells us that with the arrival of Jesus, so begins the reign of God in our world also described as the kingdom of God. And so Mark has made all of these bold statements about who he thinks Jesus is. Um, and he doesn't just drop the mic and walk away because that would be a really bad argument. He just says a bunch of things, then walks away. It's kind of like a Facebook post or a tweet, a tweet or something like that. But what Mark does with the rest of his gospel is he begins to illustrate and to back it up and to make a case for why he's, what he says in the prologue is actually true. So what we're going to do is is remember from last week that, that we left with when John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, and he was proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God. And he said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God or the reign of God has come near, repent and believe in this good news. Now, the passage we're looking at this evening is what happens next, and it's Mark 1, 16 through 20. Let me read it for you. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were also in a boat, and they were mending nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away and followed him. Jesus has just announced the arrival of the reign of God, and he's saying That reign of God is centered on me. Jesus is making a huge claim. And what's interesting is what Jesus does next. He's just announced that the reign of God has come in his person. And as we were saying in our prayer time earlier today, I find it fascinating in studying this passage, not what Jesus does next, but what he doesn't do next. He's announced that the uh, the arrival of the kingdom of God And Jesus does not build a palace. Other kings and world leaders live and operate out of palaces or places of security, places of grandeur that that sort of reflect their status and authority, right? The president lives in in the White House, which is this stately, I mean, we're kind of proud. We're humans. We like our leaders to kind of like, well, they should have a fancy house or at least like a place that Tells the world, like, this is an important person, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He turns that, that, what we expect a king or a leader to be like, he turns it on its head. Instead, Jesus uh, generally sticks to the wilderness places or in little towns and, and places where real people are living. And they're living out their their real lives in all of the messiness and pain and pride and fear and frustration. All of the disappointment and grief. And that's where Jesus most often meets people in their simple joys and in their simple sorrows and in their births and in their deaths and in their weddings and funerals and meals and festivals. That's where you'll find Jesus in the Gospels. I think that's amazing. Jesus has just announced... That with his presence is coming the kingdom of God, but he doesn't form an army. Like what world leader doesn't have an army? Jesus does do battle with the the forces of darkness, but he doesn't do battle with human beings. Humans are the image bearers of God. And if you just think about it one step further, that means they're image bearers of Jesus. Jesus came to lay his life down for humans. He came to rescue creation, and humans, no matter how corrupt we are, we're not the ultimate enemy of Jesus or God. The enemy is the Satan and and his demons who torment and sway the hearts of people, and in the very next scene, the scene we're going to cover next week, Jesus is going to do some head-to-head battle with those forces of darkness, but he does it fighting on behalf of human beings. Jesus came with the message of good news for all the people, but he doesn't hire a PR person. He doesn't have a hype guy who warms up the crowds before he preaches. In fact, he would probably drive a PR consultant absolutely nuts because every time he does something spectacular like heal someone or set somebody free from demonic oppression, he says, oh, and by the way, don't tell anybody. Let's keep this on the down low. Like PR people would be like, no, we need to tweet that. We need to get that on Insta. We get, your social's got to blow up, Jesus. You got to let people know how great you are. But he warns them not to say anything. Jesus seems to want to work on the small, intimate scale, making disciples rather than leveraging his mighty deeds to make groupies who are just enamored by his power. That's all the stuff Jesus doesn't do. And I think even that preaches good news about the kind of person he is. But let's look at what Jesus does do. How does Mark present Jesus' first words and deeds after the announcement of the reign of God? Jesus' first act in Mark's gospel is to form a community. He forms a community, not a crowd. He doesn't form a crowd. He forms a community. Now, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes Jesus was preaching and crowds would form, or he would preach to crowds. But he oftentimes noticed if too many people were gathering around, he would, say, he would just go off the rails, kind of like I do at the end of a sermon, although he said important things. But um, he would say like weird things like, you know, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh. And people would be like, what? You're crazy, man. And then they would leave. And it was like he was trying to cull the crowds a little bit. He was trying to, as my friend John Teter says, um, he, was, he was trying to find out the seekers from the snackers, right? Like people that just wanted like, uh, oh, you multiply food. I heard I can get a good meal. Well, you're just a snacker, <laughs> right? He was trying to find the seekers. He's trying to build a community of intimacy. That's what community is, right? Not just a crowd. I want you to think about that just for a minute, that from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus till his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was always in community. That the God of the universe who became flesh made it a priority to be in community. Yeah, sometimes he pulled away and prayed by himself. Like, you can't always be around people. Well, I know some of you might be able to think you can, but silence and solitude, come to school of prayer on Mondays, we'll, we'll pray in community. But Jesus was always with his, his, his people. He was always with his community. I think that tells us a little bit, if that's so important for God, it's probably important for us. And in fact, if you just want to tease out a little theological mind bender, God has revealed his Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and has always been that way which means that God is a community. Okay, just go play with that one later on. This community of Jesus, though, isn't just a group of people. Like, there's lots of communities out in the world, right? Like, um, your physical neighbors that you live by are technically, you know, part of your community. Or... Maybe the people that are your coworkers—that is a type of community. If you go to school, your, your classmates are a type of community. Right, you get, my, you get what I'm saying. That's, that's a type of community. But the c- kind of community that Jesus is building is, is one where he takes the initiative. You know, Jesus isn't just like this lonely guy. I just need people around me because I'm so lonely. He is a, he is a, he's one that seeks people out. He takes the initiative to form a community, and this is the crazy thing, is that the community Jesus builds is rooted in him, it's focused on him. N- just notice, let me emphasize some of the verbs in, in the passage that we just covered. As he, or actually the pronoun, uh, as he was going along, he saw Simon and Andrew, and Jesus said, follow me, Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and immediately he called them, and they went away to follow him. Jesus is always the master of, uh, of those sentences. Everyone else is being acted upon. They're the ones who are being seen or called. They're the ones who follow in response to Jesus' seeing and calling and commanding and drawing. <laughs> Jesus takes the initiative, and this community he's forming is rooted in him. Jesus saw the fishermen, Jesus chose them. Jesus is the center of that relationship. His powerful call caused an immediate response. Now, Mark's gospel is unique in that it almost, it has almost no details as to whether or not Simon and Andrew and James and John had ever heard of Jesus before or if they'd ever seen him before uh, or if they had any knowledge of, of who he was. The other gospel writers tell us a little bit more about each of these guys and that one was a disciple of John the Baptist, but that's not Mark's deal. That's not what he's saying to us. He doesn't want us to think psychologically. I wonder if these fishermen had known Jesus. What he's trying to say is that Jesus ha- takes the initiative and that he has this authority so that when he says, Casey, follow me, Casey drops his engineering <laughs> or whatever he was doing, and he just like, I, I gotta follow this guy. He has, he has the authority and he's drawing me to him. We live in a period of time when the average person has access to more information, more data in the palm of our hand, right? More data in the palm of our hand than any other age in human civilization. There are incredible benefits to having all that information. Um, like Trivia is one, if you can use your phone. Um, But there are also just tons of dangers. Psychologists have reported higher anxiety about decision-making in recent generations than any other time in history, um, which has a number of factors to it, but two that stand out to me are the distrust of information that we, that we live with and the oth- on the one hand, and then on the other hand is the sheer amount of information that we have. The amount of information we have can be crippling because we think we need to know everything there is before we can make a decision about something. So I bought a drone for Samara for Christmas this year, and you would think it would be pretty easy. In fact, back in the old days when I had catalogs and I was putting together my Christmas list, there might be like three remote control cars that were at Sears or whatever, and I'd just pick one and hope my parents would get that one, and they'd probably get me the one that was one cheaper than that, and I'd be happy, and I'd have a car. Well, you can't (laughs) I went on Amazon, and there are like 4,000 drones. And then you start to look at the reviews, and none of them even agree with each other. And so, you know, what I do is I start looking at, well, that person didn't spell well in their review, so maybe they don't know how to read the manual, so maybe I can't trust their review. And I'm looking at this thing well past my bedtime at a time when I shouldn't be making any decisions in the first place, and I didn't make any decision that whole night, right? So she does have a pretty cool drone now, but anyway. When it comes to trusting God, and we have all these biblical texts, and we have all of these talking heads and podcasts and theologians, it can feel overwhelming, like, how can I have faith if I don't know everything? How can I trust in this Jesus? if I, You know, I don't even, Chris is always talking about context and ancient history, and I don't know any of that stuff. Like, how, I don't know if I can follow Jesus anymore. What if I can't know everything about the Bible? Can I still follow Jesus? What if I don't know if I believe all the stuff in the Bible? Like, it's got some crazy stories in there, and I don't know if I can believe it all. So can I really follow Jesus if I don't believe every jot and tittle of the Bible? What if I'm struggling with my faith? Am I a fraud for coming to worship and participating? Am I a fraud for preaching a sermon when I'm not feeling great or not feeling my faith. In this first active scene, Jesus gathers a community. And I just want you to notice, as he does this, what is conspicuously, obviously absent from the scene. There's no theology class before he calls people to follow him. There's no interview process. There's no recital of the creeds, which, by the way, didn't exist for hundreds of years till after this scene. But what there was and what there is now, and this is what's important, is the call to follow and trust. Faith is and always been, follow me, Jesus, and I will show you. Or as St. Anselm said, faith, seeking understanding. Like Abraham and Sarah who follow God's call to leave their homeland before they could see, they had no clue where they were going. That's faith, seeking understanding. Faith started their journey and seeing God work on that journey That grew their faith and their understanding, right? Like Noah, who was told to build a massive boat in an arid place where you wouldn't even need a rowboat, let alone an ark. Faith gets him building this boat, and the understanding comes when he's safe inside of it and there's a flood raging outside. Don't let your lack of knowledge or your crisis of faith derail you. Jesus calls us to follow, not to know every stinking thing as if we could know everything. It is in the following, in the obedience, in the acts of service, in the acts of worship, in the doing life together, that's where faith is met with understanding. In fact, crises of faith are a part of the way we mature in faith. Let me just put that in a more modern way, um, deconstruction of faith, that's a big word nowadays, can be part of your maturation process of faith. And I'll tell you why deconstruction of faith is scary. is because most churches and most people who are in charge are afraid of your crisis of faith. I'll just remind you that one of our core values as a church is questioning Asking good questions. I'm a firm believer that you can't just live your whole life with your parents or your grandparents' faith. That at some time, you've got to try it out. And it's not going to fit. And so you've got to figure out what your faith is. That's a maturation process. Don't be ashamed if you're feeling like you're going through something. Most people do, multiple times in their life journey of faith. Take heart. Jesus is calling you to follow, not to pass a theology test. That's only for fools who go to seminary like me. And thanks be to God that following Jesus is by faith because doing it, it it's, it's costly. Like, it's not just like, oh, just tack this onto your life. Following Jesus is costly. You know, he passed by um, and called Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him, and there was great cost involved on their part. His call is radical. The first disciples actually left their livelihood as fishermen to follow him, at least for a period of time. These guys, they weren't rich, but they were a rare artisan class of society. You know, in our society, and I know it's shrinking right now, but still by far the middle class in America is the biggest socioeconomic group. Um, but that wasn't the case in the ancient world. In fact, it was the smallest group uh, of people. And, and these fishermen were artists in class, they were middle class. James and John's father, Zebedee, did well enough to have hired hands in their business. Uh, and these first four disciples were willing not only to leave it behind, but to leave immediately. A following Jesus is costly. Because repentance, it, it means change. Does anyone just like to change? I mean, we all say we, like, kind of want to do our resolution, we want to change, but it's hard. I see how some of you mental health counselors out there, you're like, yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Following Jesus means a decisive rearrangement of priorities. Anything, even good things like family, have to take second place when following Jesus and that thing are in conflict. So there's a perceived cost to following Jesus. It requires changing our priorities and possibly a change to our relationships and what we give our hearts to. But more than the cost, what we see presented in this story is the story of grace in following Jesus. There is a grace that Jesus, the God in the flesh, calls people like us to follow him. That's amazing. I don't know. Think of someone you really respect. I don't know who it is, a a world leader or uh, some famous author or whatever. And they said, and maybe it was in your field of study. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. Nicole, it would be like, who's a financial guru? Throw throw somebody out that you respect. Yeah, that person. They say, (laughs) I want you, Nicole, to come apprentice with me. You know, oh my gosh, right? And you'd be thinking about what you're gonna wear and like, oh, what, am I, what are my first three questions gonna be? And you know, I know you'd have it planned out. You would rock it too. But I'm just saying, like, like think that that's Jesus walking down and these guys are like, oh my gosh. We are invited to follow God. <laughs> that's better than the financial guru. That's pretty cool. So th- this, is, this is a massive grace, There's a grace in the fact that Jesus calls people to himself think of the effort God takes To humble himself to become one of us in order to reach us Like you remember when God was revealing himself as like clouds of fire and smoke on mountaintops and And the whole nation of israel is like you're my people and they're like, ah We don't want to meet with you. You freak us out. Moses you go So he's like, all right, you know This is okay I'm going to do it differently. God becoming one of us as a baby, then growing up. I know babies are sort of terrifying if you have to take care of them, but if they're someone else's, they're pretty cute. And it's like, that's the kind of accessibility that God humbles himself uh, to meet us with. Jesus wants to know you and to be known by you. That's just clear as day in this passage. But it's not just the call to relationship. It's the reality that through trusting in Jesus, through a relationship with Him, you become part of His family. You inherit the benefits of forgiveness and eternal life and God's Spirit dwelling with you and in you. But if that weren't enough, another grace of Jesus' call to follow Him is that He gives us purpose. He gives us purpose. In this story, he calls these four fishermen to be fishers of people. He says, let's go fishing, boys. You're pretty good at this craft. Now let me show you how to fish for people. And what does fishing for people even mean? Like, what would these four fishermen have heard the subtext being when Jesus says, you know, because obviously they're not going to go throw nets on human beings. You know, it's a metaphor, Right? So, so what would they have thought of when Jesus says, hey, let's go fish for people? Well, (laughs) there's a bunch of different things. I'm going to, I'm going to share three um, that ancient first century Jewish people in Palestine would have probably thought of. The first one is that there's an ancient biblical context. And Jeremiah 16, 16, for example, is written during a time in history When Israel is dispersed, they're taken into captivity, and the prophet Jeremiah is given um, a word from the Lord. He says, here's what it's going to be like. I'm going to raise up Israelites, and you're going to go fish for the people in the dispersion. You're going to go bring them back in, back home, okay? So there's a regathering of people in exile. There is salvation language in that that they would have heard. That's what fishing for people means in an ancient biblical context. Second, there's a Greco-Roman context. So these guys are in Galilee. That's an extremely Hellenized part of the world. So they spoke Aramaic. They also spoke Greek. And they did business in Greek, and that was just the way that they understood the world. And, and in that context, there were some philosophers who, do, who were described as fishers of men, meaning that they were teachers whose philosophy and way of life would gather people in. So as has a teaching element to it. And then the third thing is that during this time period, there were a group of Jewish people in a place called Qumran, which is like where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these folks, this small community, um, they were like special forces Jews, not in the military sense, but they thought we are gonna follow the law stricter than anybody else. We're gonna live in the desert, do the whole aesthetic thing. And, and they, um, they talked about Satan having nets and, and that they, they would send out, that they saw their ministry as being fishermen who would rescue people from the nets of Satan, So you've got these three things, a biblical context, a Greco-Roman context, meaning teacher, and then this Qumran community was talking a lot about nets and Satan's nets and rescuing people out of the nets. And as is common in Mark's gospel, we're gonna see this over and over again, it's not necessary that we have to choose one of those three. In fact, I think what Mark is saying is there's a mixture of meaning. And what we're going to see in the next several chapters is that Jesus and his followers fish for people in ways that apply to all three of those examples. And the bottom line is that fishing for people is an act of grace because it is a call to us to call others out of darkness and out of death and into the light and faith in, in Jesus. I mean, Jesus is really doing evangelism here, which I think is cool too, because When you think of evangelism, what are your stereotypes? I mean, just think to yourself, what are the stereotypes of evangelism? You don't have to say them out loud. Just think for a moment. And then just look at what Jesus does and doesn't do on this beach. Like, you don't see Jesus saying, hey, fisher dudes, you're gonna burn in hell. You better follow me. You see him say that? Uh, You don't see them, uh, him saying like, you're a sinner, but if you come forward, you can pray this formulaic prayer, and then you'll be saved. You don't see that on the beach here. Does Jesus quiz them on theological points or debate um, the existence of God? He doesn't do that. Uh, does he have them come forward during a worship gathering? So before he talks to them, imagine this, he sets up a tent and does a revival, and then he says, well, if you want to follow me, then you have to come forward. And he doesn't do that. Does he demand that they vote a particular political party? If they could, if it wasn't a democracy. He he doesn't do that. He doesn't seem as interested in those things. Those might come later. But that's that's not how he does his evangelism. Jesus calls people to follow him. And he doesn't shy away ever in the Gospels, like we'll see this over and over again. He never shies away about talking about sin. I mean, he's very direct. Probably be kind of abrasive to us because we're so like Northwest and like, ooh, you know, PC. Jesus is pretty abrupt. He's pretty, he never shies away about talking about sin and death and repentance. But Jesus seeks to save, not to condemn. That is the overwhelming message in all of these stories in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus seeks to save and not to condemn. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2. Jesus' mission is to call people to be part of his community, call people to trust him, to try living out their faith before you're fully convinced of every single detail. To find life in Jesus and to join him in fishing for people, to share the invitation to follow Jesus with others. Now, maybe you're here today and you're thinking about following Jesus, but you've been paralyzed, paralyzed with the Bible or competing information you hear on the news or feeling inadequate about not knowing enough, fill in the blank, whatever you think enough is. Know this, know this. That Jesus loves you, that he's calling you to follow him, not to know it all. He's calling you into his community, not claiming that the community of the church is perfect. He's not claiming that. But he is claiming he's offering you new life. Maybe you're here today and you've expressed your commitment to follow Jesus but your faith is wavering. Your disillusions, not so much with Jesus, but with his followers. And you're wondering, can I still be a part of his people even when I have all these doubts and fears and frustrations? Know this. Jesus sees you. And hears you. Just like he called the four fishermen before they couldn't have possibly even had any theology about Jesus, so he calls you to himself, to trust him, to be loved by him, to live out his words and his teachings, not to live out the imperfect ramblings of his people. You know, my spiritual direction training that I'm completing at the summertime this year, I'm learning that followers of Jesus who are in a period of questioning in their faith, they're actually in an exciting season of potential growth. So if you ever see me like get excited because you're struggling with your faith, I'm not, I'm not mean. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this could be a real turning point for your faith. So let's keep our eyes on jesus that's what we need encouragement from each other to do we don't need each other to to tell us uh, all the answers but to keep following after the lord and for all of us from those of us who are fully on board with jesus to those who are just stumbling in the right direction toward him hear his call let's go fishing he says Hear his dignifying call that gives you purpose no matter your age or your gender or your ethnicity or your income, no matter your occupation. Jesus calls us to share his good news with other people. The good news of a God who loves people and who invites them into his family and forgives and offers new life. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself on Epiphany in this way. As a humble king, as one who is with the people where they actually live in the spaces of their lives, not in some palace or an ivory tower where you expect us to find you. Thank you that you call us where we're at. Thank you that you don't require a certain level of education or even, um, even a certain IQ or ability to follow you, you invite us into your community and to trust you. Thank you for, for your love, and I pray that you would help us to receive your love. Lord, I specifically pray that you would break down barriers to us receiving your love, whether that's past trauma or mental blocks Thank you, Lord.